Welcome to the Den of Dissidents. This is a show where we challenge the current culture and mainstream talking points of the day. What is the news telling us? What is the culture telling us? Where is our civilization headed? And by what standard do we judge these issues? Are you a dissident? Let's find out. What's going on, people? We are back. So before we get into this next episode, just want to promote this resource. I think you guys will find very valuable. So um, you guys got to check this course out called Philosophy 101 by Jay Dyer. So Jay Dyer is an author. He's a talk show host and a geopolitical analyst. And he goes into the deep roots of world issues um, and how the world has been shaped by elites nefarious elites and organizations. Um, He also explains how history, uh, he explains history from a philosophical perspective and he incorporates the spiritual meaning behind history and current events. Um, And he has a channel that's dedicated to that, but he has also created this course, this philosophy course. So if you're a person that wants to learn about how to be an independent thinker, you want to learn about philosophy and debate, you should check his course out. Um, So I'll just give you a quick glimpse of what it has to offer. There's also a free sample if you want to jump in. Um, If you want a better way to study philosophy, gain some wisdom and defend yourself against the regime, check out Philosophy 101 with Jay Dyer. This is not your father's philosophy. It's an online course. It empowers you to ask better questions, get better answers, take ownership of your thinking so it's not done for you by the authorities. Um, Also, let's just uh, check out a few things. Philosophy 101 with Jay Dyer. It delivers engaging takes that are refreshing, a refreshing change from a stale legacy curriculum. It's a university caliber course presented in true Jay Dyer style. It's very witty, relatable, practical. I will say this guy is funny, so he makes philosophy hilarious and he does great impressions. So again, this is not your father's philosophy course. It also gives you a deep understanding of philosophical principles, how they relate to your everyday life. Um, There's also tools that teach you how to recognize if someone is scamming, lying or duping you. How to analyze and cross-examine a piece of propaganda from art to media to academia. Learn how to find out how you're being scammed, how you're being manipulated with bad art, propaganda, and things like that. Um, Also, one thing that I like about this course is that there's a, um, a, a popular phrase that Dyer's course says, and uh, it says, don't be a boring ass rock. Empower yourself with wisdom. Those who go through the motions of life weighted down by materialism and base pleasures are inconsequential NPCs of the world. Boring ass rocks. And you are not one of those, are you? The examined life is the only one worth living. Socrates said that. Um, 
Not in a stuffy, dreary, navel-gazing way, nope. Instead, Jay throws back the curtain with his trademark wit, pioneering a better way to study philosophy. Philosophy is for everyone, and it applies to all areas of life, no matter your interests or profession. Thinking like a philosopher will give you an advantage in any circumstance. It's no coincidence that the elite scientists, theologians, economists, lawyers, and mathematicians throughout history were also philosophers. Philosophy 101, it's an on-demand digital course that includes 12 lectures delivered by Jay Dyer, 12 pre-recorded Q&A sessions with deeper exploration, distinguished guest presenters, recommended reading, supplemental resources for deeper integration. Also, it offers a survey of Western history and philosophers from the pre-Socratics to the modern era, including influential thinkers, excluded from the mainstream canon, tools for applying wisdom and reason in your daily life, how to decode symbolism, decipher doublespeak, and debunk the lies all around you. An advantage over your opponents by understanding their viewpoint as well as they do without adopting it. An autonomous approach to studying philosophy and gaining wisdom. It's It also gives you a deeper understanding of the nature of reality and what it means to be truly wise. So again, don't be a boring ass rock. Check out the course. I I really do recommend it. This guy, he teaches philosophy in such a digestible manner and it's very entertaining. It'll make you want to learn. And everybody is a philosopher. Everybody has a philosophy about something, even if you're a plumber. You have a philosophy about your work ethic and why you show up to work to go do that plumbing job. If you're a father, you have a philosophy on fatherhood. A mother, same thing. A politician, you have a philosophy on how to govern, right? So everybody has a philosophy. The question is, what is the correct philosophy? Do you have the correct philosophy? Do you have a good worldview? Check out Philosophy 101. You'll get all of that and more. Peace. Welcome back to the Den of Dissidents. Today, I have special guest David Knight. He is the host of the David Knight Show, and he was also a former host of the David Knight Show on Infowars.com. But you can find him at thedavidknightshow.com. And he's also on Twitter, Rumble, and on YouTube. Thanks for coming on the show today, David. Oh, thank you, Rashad. Pleasure to be here. Absolutely. So um, I want to start out asking you a few uh, questions about your your um, experience in media. Were you uh, a news anchor before? No, I wasn't. I'd been on the other side of the camera mostly. And um, I started getting involved in the mid-2000s and contests. And uh, at that time, they were doing a lot of crowdsourced uh, contests. And uh, some of it was for products and some of it was for uh, different organizations when the conservative uh, libertarian organizations started doing it. Uh, I got involved in that and I had a good bit of success in that. I entered a contest at InfoWars and uh, although Jakari Jackson won the contest, uh, Alex hired a bunch of people. I was one of the people that he hired. And uh, so I got into it uh, that way. And um, at first, I was just doing reporting and uh, then eventually started doing uh, substitute hosting. And then uh, after a few years, got my own show there. So. Absolutely. When I listened on InfoWars, I thought you were 
one of the best, if not the best, um, oh, thank you. hosts on there. Very, very, um, you, you had great critique and uh, good perspective. Um, David, where, where did you get your worldview from? Um, because when I listen to you, you, you're very precise. It sounds like you're coming from a constitutional perspective, a biblical perspective. Yeah. And, um, where did you get that from? Well, uh, I got the biblical perspective from uh, growing up in a Christian home. <laughs> and, uh, I, was, I was there all the time. I mean, it was, uh, three times a week we would go. And uh, uh, it's uh, not too many churches do that anymore that I know of. But anyway, uh, grew up with that and um, also grew up in a family where both of my grandparents had had a small business. My dad had a, a small business. And so um, I was uh, always hearing things from their perspective. Uh, their biggest concern always was, what is the government going to do to us next? You know, that was their biggest problem. It wasn't how they were going to make a product or how to make it uh, cheap and how to serve people. But, you know, what is the government going to shut down with us next? That type of thing. And so that kind of colored my perspective on it. And um, I went to uh, school in engineering because I could see that it really wasn't going to be possible to follow in my father's footsteps in terms of having my own business. Eventually, did go back into business for myself. Uh, I did it not really because I thought it was going to be something I was going to do for a while, but because I wanted to um, do a point of sale system. And I wanted to use uh, the business that we started as kind of a test bed for it. Uh, but we wound up uh, starting a video business that was... Um, came online right about the time that there was a uh, a massive release of catalog titles from the uh, studios. They, they did not want there to be a video rental business. Uh, they fought it, and um, that's why you had the membership clubs and things like that was because they were trying to make it illegal. Uh, but there was a, a test case that went to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court said, well, once you sell something, you can't um, tell people what to do with it afterwards. And after that happened, they decided that they would release their catalog, and that was when we got interested in it. But I was mainly interested in setting up a point-of-sale system because when we were looking at video stores, everybody was trying to keep track of inventory on 3 by 5 cards. And uh, I was also interested in doing something with the Macintosh, which had just come out. And um, it was uh, not really set up for business use. It only had like a floppy disk drive in it. But at the same time all this stuff happened, they put out the very first hard disk drives. They were very, very tiny by today's standards, but uh, that made that uh, possible. There still wasn't any database, so I wrote that. But as we did that as a kind of a test case, right about that time, it really took off. And uh, so we wound up doing that for a few years. But then I got into uh, video editing, video production, and then uh, I'd also been involved in those years in terms of third-party politics uh, I didn't like the Republicans or the Democrats, and uh, so I got involved with the Libertarian Party, and uh, I was editor for the party I ran as a candidate and some things like that. And so that was the thing that really kind of helped me with the contests that began in the mid-2000s. So um, uh, just all those things kind of came together. Absolutely. Now, um, I wanted to ask, I want to ask you, um, I want to talk about a little bit about Western civilization, civilization in general, and where you see it headed. But I also wanted to talk about your critiques on Trump. So mm -hmm. in terms of, I heard an interview you did with George Barner the other day. Um, in yeah. your opinion, where did civil, Western civilization in America 
go wrong? Do you see us collapsing as a society? And how did we get here? I think we lost our foundation. And I've been watching this come apart my entire life. Uh, about the middle of the 20th century, when I was a kid, uh, they started kicking God out of the schools. And that was really the foundation of our society. And um, once you do that, you start heading down a path that um, uh, we, we see where this is leading now. All, all the things that we took for granted in terms of due process, uh, free speech, uh, all these things that were uh, the, the foundation of our society, of our freedoms and that type of thing, that's all coming apart at the seams. And um, even going back further than Supreme Court decisions that said you, you don't have the freedom to uh, exercise your religion in public, uh, you can't do it at school and that type of thing, the, the exercise of religion is completely different from the establishment of religion. You know, you go back to the beginning of our republic and the established churches were in each of these individual states. And so you would have uh, in Maryland, the Catholics and uh, Rhode Island, you have the Baptists and most of New England, you'd have the Congregationalists. They had all fled religious persecution uh, to come to America. And uh, they did not want to see that kind of religious persecution begin again. Although in each of those states, they had an established state church. And in most cases, at the beginning, you would have to attend that church and you would have to give money to that church. Eventually, they eased up where you only had to uh, give money to the church, but you didn't have to attend it. That's kind of where we are with the government schools today. You still have to give money to them, but you don't have to attend them. And um, even after we had the Bill of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights talking about uh, the fact that there would be no establishment of a state religion, you still had. Uh, going into the 1840s in Massachusetts and other places, you still had an established state church that they gave money to. So that was a state thing. What they were talking about in the Constitution was that we were not going to have a national state, uh, an established national church. Uh, they would still have uh, the ability, uh, even though I don't think it's a good idea. I think Jefferson had the right idea when he uh, separated these out. Uh, I don't agree with a, with a joining of, of church and state because what you wind up with is uh, the state corrupts the church. And so, uh, but, but what they were really trying to do was to make sure that, uh, you know, the Baptist in Rhode Island and the Congregationalists in the New England and the Catholics in Maryland were not going to have some other religion forced upon them. And so uh, that's really what establishment is. The exercise is if you are a teacher and you decide that you want to do a silent prayer. And we're now starting to move back in the other direction with this Supreme Court. But that's where the Constitution was all along. Uh, you know, we've had that uh, coach who got fired because he said a silent prayer on the 50-yard line after the game. And uh, the Supreme Court sided with him. And, uh, but, you know, the, the exercise of religion, the free exercise of religion, is something that should never be stopped. But we purged that out. And, um, you know, I, I don't want to see the uh, schools turning into uh, you know, seminaries where they teach a particular religion. As a matter of fact, if you go back to right after the Civil War, uh, R.L. Dabney, who was a Southern um, uh, pastor, he was also, um, he was like the, the chaplain or something for uh, uh, Stonewall Jackson. But he said that you, you can't have a government school eventually, because one way or the other, you're going to have this conflict of religions. And I think he was absolutely right about that. Uh, he was very specific about these, how these conflicts are going to come up. And he went through the various different scenarios about how you might do it. 
But he said, you know, you're even going to have secular humanism, which is, you, you mentioned George Barna. George Barna is all about worldviews, right? And your worldview is going, is, is really your religion. And your religion, your worldview is going to be conflicting with other people. And so if you have a government-established worldview, and we certainly see that the government institutions have a very definite worldview that they're putting on people, that's going to be conflicting with a lot of people's religion. And so are you going to force that down people's throats? Or are you going to uh, you know, let them have uh, the freedom to choose what they want to teach their kids? Uh, but the other part of this, which goes back even to the uh, mid-1800s, is this whole idea of postmodernism, that there is no objective truth. And I think that's the other thing. That combined with the idea that we're going to uh, stamp out any expression of religion, I think those two things have been fatal to our society. And you certainly see that now in terms of uh, you know, transgenderism. There is no objective truth, not even with the physical reality of your body. They have purged all that out, and and uh, and that is. I, I call it post-objectivism. I know everybody else calls it postmodernism. That doesn't really say anything to anybody. But if we get away from objective truth, that's where we really are right now. That's why I prefer to call it post-objectivism. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, why do you think that some of our leaders have endorsed uh, moral relativism, especially in the area of? Um, gender. I mean, our, our current president now is endorsing mm -hmm. this type of behavior and this ideology where, you know, little uh, Johnny can be little Jessica now. Um, you know, when I yeah. think about truth, I mean, in reality, the average person doesn't apply um, moral relativism, moral relativism to their bank account. You know, yeah, they want to make right. sure that a certain amount of money that they have in their pocket is going into their bank account. So they're not going to say, oh, I'm going to live my truth and uh, put a million dollars in I guess in you my could account. say that we got that with the Federal Reserve, though, right? <laughs> they, right. They kinda, they're as detached from reality as yeah. uh, anything in the transgender agenda. But, uh, yeah, they, they just make this stuff up. Right. But, uh, yeah, I think it's very empowering for them. You know, when they can come to you and tell you uh, that you're going to say 2 plus 2 equals 5, that's what the totalitarians always want to do. And that's what this is really about. If you go along with their pronouns, then they're going to have something else to push you at. It's like, oh, okay, you're going to do that? Okay, now do this next. It's just about the exercise of power. And it's about getting you to live, as uh, Solzhenitsyn said, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, it's about getting you to live by a lie. Uh, he understood that. Orwell understood that. We need to understand what is really behind all this stuff. This is not about hurting somebody's feelings. It's not about being hateful to people or bullying people. Uh, they're actually trying to bully you into living by a lie. That's what this is really about. And that's what all uh, totalitarian dictators or wannabe totalitarian dictators always do. And of course, Biden is going to now in the HHS where they have um, uh, Richard, who calls himself Rachel uh, Devine or Levine, I think it is, yeah. Uh, you know, that's uh, that's where he is, and they're going to uh, penalize people if they don't use these made-up pronouns. Yeah, crazy. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> now, I've listened to your show a lot, and you are one of the few voices that has critiqued Trump, I would say, from a, a principled position. Most of the critique that I've heard on mainstream media, especially from the left, has been emotional and oh he's with the russians and i don't like the way he speaks and he's a white supremacist and all these things 
but you critique him from a constitutional perspective, also from a um, a biblical perspective. Now, leading up to his um, presidency, people thought, me as well, I was wondering, is this guy, is he an outsider? Is he going to be a disruptor <laughs> to the establishment? Seems like, his, you know, we don't know where he's coming from. He hasn't worked in government. Who is who is he? Mm-hmm. So, in your opinion, was he a globalist puppet? Was was he a, a knowing participant or a useful idiot? Yeah, that's the question, isn't it? And you know, I I asked that question for a long time, and now I believe that he knew what was going on. I don't think that he's incompetent. The, the amazing thing to me is, and this is the real Trump derangement syndrome. And that is the people who think that uh, he was just taken advantage of, you know, but he's going to be our savior, right? We need to get him. Our only hope is to get Trump back in. Now, he didn't do all that stuff that he did that they hate. They hate everything that he did. They hate the lockdowns. They hate the trillions of dollars and spending, the training for universal basic income. They hate the gun control by executive order. They hate the jab. But hey, Trump was just lied to by everybody. And uh, we still have his his own people out there. They they have this um, this bipolar disorder. <laughs> they hate the vaccine so much, but they can't ascribe it to Trump. And I understand why. Look, I, it's a very uncomfortable place to be where I am uh, because the left doesn't agree with me on issues, and the right that agrees with me on issues doesn't want to call out the hypocrisy of Trump. They get angry with me. I'm just trying to be consistent, and I'm trying to apply their standards to their candidate. And get them to say, look, it's one thing when somebody's a candidate. When somebody is a candidate, it's important to look at them. As you pointed out, you don't know what they're going to do. But do they see the issues in the same way that you see them? Do they identify the same problems? And even if they don't have a solution that is exactly what you think needs to be done, uh, do they at least understand what the problem is going to be? And that's what I saw with Trump in, in the first uh, time he was running in 2016. Julian Assange said, we know who Hillary Clinton is. We know she's a warmonger and we know she's a criminal, dangerous. We don't know who Trump is. Well, you know, Trump is the guy that's, you know, his administration has um, got Julian Assange locked up and began the process of killing him in jail. Uh, that's who he is. And that's the, who the people that he hired are. And when he comes in and he tells us that um, Iraq was based on a lie about weapons of mass destruction, he's telling you the truth. But then what is infuriating about Trump is that he will then take the woman who was running the program that did the torture and gave the lies about weapons of mass destruction based on that torture to other people who used that to get us into the Iraq war. He promotes her to the head of the CIA, Gina Haspel. And so that's the thing that's really annoying about it. I I saw uh, Dave Chappelle uh, say, you know, the thing about Donald Trump is he comes out and he, he's in this private meeting with all these globalists or whatever, and he comes out and he tells you, hey, you won't believe what these guys in here are doing. And, they're, and then he goes right back in and he starts doing it himself. <laughs> and that's really what's so infuriating about this. It's like, wait a minute, we've got to hold people responsible for what they do. And we should be holding up principles and not politicians. Because politicians have positions, politicians have postures, and they're constantly changing those positions and those postures. We need to have some ironclad principles, and we need to stick to them to the extent that when somebody betrays those, whether it's done out of uh, betrayal 
or whether it is done out of uh, deception. They just don't know what's going on. There's an argument to be made that Trump really doesn't know what's going on because he, he ran casinos, six of them, into bankruptcy. Now, how do you do that? You, know, you guys basically almost got a license to print money at a casino. He ran six of them into, into bankruptcy. But I think he does know. And I think that um, uh, I, I think that when you look at what happened in 2020, um, I, I was just fit to be tied. A and I think it was necessary to have Trump in there in order for the globalists to be able to execute their plan. Because you see how these people oppose it as soon as it was Biden. Uh, they were, and they hate that issue. Anybody other than somebody that they love, somebody that they've been told for five or six years is the antithesis of globalism. He's the only person that could run the globalist agenda through on them. And that's mm. what has me very worried about the next election. Wow. You know, I've thought about that too, because it, it seems like the conservatives, even Democrats fall asleep depending on when their guy is in. So the globalists yeah. know that from what you're saying, they can take the face, use a face of so of conservatism, if you want to call Trump a conservative, and put mm -hmm. the conservatives to sleep, but put their agenda you through him. That's right. That's right. Because they know that and they the won't oppose it because they trust him. There's so much trust. You know, it was our founders um, who said, uh, "Trust," you know, Patrick Henry, "Trust no man." but bind him down with the chains of the Constitution. We need to apply that standard to everybody. And, you know, don't don't just go back and say, well, I trust him. You know, that's that's part of the problem with Fauci, right? Oh, it's somebody in authority, and he's telling me that this is what it is, and this he's Mr. Science, and he's got all the science in it. Oh, well, just trust him. No, you have to question everybody about what they're doing. You have to be critical uh, about what they're doing. Think of, uh, skeptical. Use critical thinking. Hold to principles. If you don't do that, you're going to wind up being led into slavery uh, by somebody like Fauci, somebody like Trump, somebody like Biden. All right. Now, when it comes to the lockdowns, because I've heard you talk about this on your show, too, and and some of the positions I've never heard, like you, you do, um, you talk about some, you mentioned some interesting things that I didn't hear in, in the media. So with the lockdowns, the conservative base was opposed to lockdowns. According to what you're saying, Trump promoted lockdowns? Yes. Trump, they, the, you know, um, it was uh, Harry Truman who said the buck stops here. Uh, he had that uh, on his desk as president. Well, responsibility stops there. But also the buck stops uh, starts with the president as well. How does the federal government get most of the things done that it wants done? With money. I was just talking earlier today with Eric Peters, who's uh, got a, a site all about cars and liberty and things like that. And, uh, you know, um, he, he's basically um, had a car site, but as the government is starting to increasingly restrict our use of cars and wants to ban all private cars altogether, he's increasingly getting into uh, the politics side of it because you can't keep the politics out of the, our transportation. But, um, you know, when we talk about... Um, uh, where this is headed and how we do things. We went back and we said, you know, how, how did, uh, how did we get the 55 mile an hour speed limit enforced? Well, Nixon wanted that, you know, we'd had the Arab oil embargo and they decided, well, we need to save fuel. So we're going to have everybody drive at 55 miles per hour and that's going to increase the fuel economy. So we're going to mandate that. Well, he didn't have the authority to mandate that. Uh, and so what he did to get the States to go along with it was, um, he said, well, we're giving you highway funds. 
and we're not going to give those highway funds to you if you don't put a 55 mile an hour speed limit on it. Uh, but if you do put that on, you'll also be able to write tickets to people. So there's something in it for you, right? And so it's money. You'll be able to write speeding tickets, and uh, we will also uh, give you federal funds for infrastructure, for roads and that type of thing. And that's the way the government always does these types of things. That's why I say the buck starts with the president. It doesn't just stop with the president. The responsibility stops with the president, but the initiative and the way they get people to do it without coming into conflict with the Tenth Amendment without coming, without issuing direct orders. You see Fauci saying, I didn't, I didn't order anybody to do anything. And Trump is saying the same thing. They incentivize people to do it. They gave massive amounts of money to hospitals to use a protocol that was going to kill people. Uh, we're going to not see people. We're going to, we test you, you test, go home, come back if you're really, really sick, and we'll put you on a ventilator. Mm. which killed most of the people, or we'll give you remdesivir, which killed a lot of people, and on and on. And, and so they had a death protocol, and they were incentivized. The federal government said, if you identify somebody as having COVID, uh, we will give you uh, a bonus of um, uh, $13,000, uh, $13, I think it was. And, and then if you put them on a ventilator, we'll give you $39,000. Well, guess what? A ventilator costs $50,000. You get one patient that you've identified. You point to them and say, they've got COVID. And you put them on a ventilator, you've already paid for your machine. And then, of course, they said, and if you identify somebody as a COVID patient, we will give you a 20% bonus of everything that you do while they're there in the hospital. And so um, I had a, while this was happening in 2020, and um, uh, Handy, he was a, a guy who works as EMS in the Atlanta area. He's now got a sub stack. But he was sending me stuff and he said, we had a guy come in who was obviously having a heart attack. And he said, instead of treating him for the heart attack, they took him in and gave him a COVID test first. Why? Well, because they could get a 20% bonus. I realized that in August of 2020, I saw the American Hospital Association was complaining to CMS. That's the government agency that administers Medicare and Medicaid. And that's where the bonuses were coming through. And they complained to CMS, the American Hospital Association, said, you told us that you didn't have enough tests and that the test didn't work, and you told us to do a clinical diagnosis. Now you're telling us that we've got to have proof that we had a positive test? Come on. And that's, you told us you were going to give us a 20% bonus. You know, cough it up. And, and when I saw that, it's like, I didn't, I, that's the first I realized that they were giving them a bonus. And so the federal government was incentivizing the pandemic. And the federal government was financially rewarding that on the hospital side. And on the political side, Trump was giving massive amounts of money to governors, Republican and Democrat, to call it an emergency and to keep it going. A Republican governor in Idaho, uh, Brad Little, and they had a Republican legislature there as well. He was locking everybody down. And people didn't like it. And they were telling him, you know, stop the emergency order and all the rest of the stuff. And they were going to have a special session of the legislature. 2020 was a year that they were not meeting. They would meet every other year. They did that in Texas as well and uh, maybe some other states. But they didn't meet every year. So there was no time where the legislature was scheduled to meet. But they were going to call a special session to stop this emergency order. And Brad Little said, uh, I'm going to disband that. Like he was some kind of British colonial governor. And then he came up with his own rules and then brought them back in and got them to rubber stamp it. Why did that happen? Well, the reality is, is that Brad Little, like all the rest of these governors, was getting billions of dollars from the Trump administration. And he had an incentive to keep this going. He was getting several times what the entire state budget was 
that the legislature then has to fight over who's going to spend this on on who and whatever. But he had amount of money, a stash of money that was several times the annual budget of the entire state. And he could hand that out to his friends and pals. That's a very powerful motivator for people in politics. That's the kind of money that corrupts people. And that was the basis of this. And this that's how the Trump administration and Fauci ran this stuff through. And they did the same thing with uh, Biden. But they've always done that. You go back and you look, uh, if they want uh, boys in the girls' bathroom, they say, well, uh, if you don't do that, we're going to take away your Title IX funding or whatever, right? We're going to pull back funding from the school. So you do it. And this is money that we have sent to Washington uh, that they're bribing us with. But that's how they always do it. I had so many people push back against me in, in 2020 when I was telling them, this is what's happening. And it's because of Trump's incentives that this is happening. They said, oh, no, it's not It's not uh, Trump. It's not even the Republican governors. It's the Democrat governors. And it's like, no, it's happening everywhere. And it's happening because they're being paid and they're corrupted. Okay. So the hospitals have some um, basically corrupt protocols that are not solving the problem in, in terms of COVID and they're being incentivized. They're being paid from the federal government. So who's in charge of the federal government? Trump. And he's giving these hospitals money when they carry out this protocol. Yeah. Yeah. He's put people in charge. HHS. Health and Human Services is, you know, over Fauci, over CMS and things like that. Who was running HHS? Well, going back to the transition period in 2017, you had RFK Jr., who had been a long-term uh, vaccine opponent, and uh, and Trump positioned himself as a vaccine skeptic, and he called uh, RFK Jr. in. They had a meeting, and it was publicized, and um, he was interviewed as he was leaving the meeting in Trump Towers. And he said, uh, well, we're going to uh, take a look at the vaccines and we're going to do some real tests on them. He says, I'm not anti-vaccine, I'm, uh, but I want to make sure that the vaccines are safe and that they're effective. Well, that sent up a big alarm with big pharmaceutical companies. They gave uh, a substantial amount of money to Trump and his transition team, and other, which is giving it to him. And uh, right away, uh, Trump um, brought in Alex Azar who was the CEO of Eli Lilly, one of the biggest pharmaceutical companies, and one of the pharmaceutical companies that's had the most political clout in Washington, uh, going back to 2005 when they put in the PREP Act uh, to uh, grant immunity to Pfizer, Moderna, anybody who would do a vaccine or some kind of emergency drug uh, during a pandemic. That they, they plan for that quite ahead of time. And so in 2005, they passed the PREP Act, and they also put in there another uh, thing that was that uh, Eli Lilly wanted and lobbied for very hard. They even called it the Lilly Rider. And so Eli Lilly had a long history of being able to lobby in Washington and get what they wanted. And it was the CEO of Eli Lilly that Alex, uh, uh, Alex Azar that Trump put in as head of HHS. He brought Scott Gottlieb in, uh, who was his first FDA head from pharmaceutical companies. And then after and he left, uh, Scott Gottlieb went back to Pfizer. Uh, the guy who replaced him, Stephen Hahn, uh, went back to pharmaceutical companies as well. Uh, he's with Moderna. And, and so the people who are running this, we have regulatory capture because we have this revolving door. And because we have a bureaucracy that makes up all the rules, and uh, Trump was fine with all of that, and uh, you know he's letting these people make the rules, and um, you know he's not uh, exercising any authority over this stuff, 
and uh, that's that's the way this thing went down. I saw the uh, I saw uh, Robert Kennedy's documentary, the real Anthony Fauci, and there's a part in that documentary. This was part one that blew my mind. He said that he was invited by Trump to like, be on the vaccine uh, safety committee or something like that, and he consulted with him. He was like a potential pick for that, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then that's he said. Meeting. Right. And then he said in the documentary that Trump went and talked to Bill Gates about mm -hmm. that. And Bill Gates said, no, 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 don't. Um, no, I don't think that's, that's right. a wise idea or something like that. Yeah. And then right. in the documentary, they played a, a clip of Bill Gates talking about his meeting with Trump. So I, I thought that was so interesting. Mm -hmm. I had never heard that before. Oh, um, yeah. yeah, he's very good in terms of his book, uh, Anthony Fauci, uh, Chapter 12, is very good because it talks about the long history of the CIA involvement and Fauci's involvement in all these germ games. And, and that's what chapter 12 in his book is about, is germ games. I, I don't support uh, anybody. I don't support RFK Jr. I, I've got big problems with him on the climate stuff. I think that's really where they're going to focus, uh, are focusing uh, a big part of the Great Reset. Uh, I call them MacGuffins because that's a term that Alfred Hitchcock used for whatever it is, whether it's a Maltese Falcon or what, it doesn't matter. It's just this thing that motivates the character that moves the plot along. And so they can move the plot along and they can motivate the characters with uh, climate change. The climate change uh, was originally when I was in high school, uh, the first Earth Day was all about global cooling. And we were going to have an ice age for the first eight years. And all of a sudden they just flipped it 180 degrees and said, no, we're going to have global warming. But we got to do all the same things that we're going to do if it's going to be global cooling. It's like, that doesn't make any sense. And beneath it all was a depopulation agenda. And uh, then after it became clear that, um, you know, it became questionable that whether they had global warming or not, they changed it to climate change. Uh, but uh, one of the groups that I was with, um, they were suing uh, to get, as part of the climate gate stuff that happened, they were suing to get information data from Michael Mann, who came up with the hockey stick uh, thing that Al Gore used in his Inconvenient uh, Truth. And um, he fought like mad to keep us from seeing his data. Now, you don't do that if uh, you don't have something to hide. And um, he was able to win in court, and we were not able to get his data. But it told me everything that I needed to know about this. And of course, there's many other ways that you can look at it. But, but the reason I bring that up is because I don't promote um, anybody. I just, I talk about issues, you know, and I agree when I agree with RFK Jr., I'll agree with him. Uh, and when I disagree with him on issues, I'll talk about that as well. But he did get the germ game thing correct. Uh, going back to two months before 9-11, they had the first one of them, Dark Winter, and then they did it on an annual basis. They had at least one of these every year. Uh, but they used that, you know, it was two months before 9-11. Then one week after 9-11, we had the anthrax attack, and it was a false flag. They blamed it on Iraq, but New York Times and Washington Post, many others, uh, it, it got exposed that, no, this isn't uh, anthrax in a form that anybody has other than our CIA. Uh, but they used that. Two months later, they pushed out model legislation to all the states. They called it the Model Health Emergency Powers Act. And that legislation was enacted gradually over the decades as they were planning to do exactly what they pulled off on us in 2020. Wow. Um, in terms of the lockdowns, dur during 2020, we often heard that oh, the, the Democrats and the Democratic states and governors are locking their people down and, you know, people are le leaving the Democratic states and coming to the red states. And the Democrats got a lot of blame for doing the lockdowns. Now, 
how were how did Trump assist with the lockdowns? I mean, if a state is locking its people down, telling them they can't go to work, would the federal government be able to step in and prevent that? I think they should have. You know, I think that the government at every level ought to be standing with the Constitution. Government at every level takes an oath to the Constitution. And so I think that government at every level ought to try to intervene and interpose if somebody is uh, violating their oath to the Constitution. The way I see it is, um, and it's the way the founders saw it, they said uh, lex rex, lex meaning law and rex meaning king. They said the law is king. The law is our king. The Constitution is the king. If you go back and you look at um, um, Lord of the Rings, for example, right? You, know, you got the return of the king. But uh, meanwhile, you had the, the steward who was in, there was a whole line of people who were stewards. And they were just temporarily, uh, you know, stewards of the household, waiting for the king to return. They weren't the rightful king. These people that we have as elected uh, individuals, they swear to obey the law, the Constitution, and uh, the Constitution is the king. And uh, uh, so it is. Um, you know, when, when you look at what these these people are signing up to do, they all have a responsibility to interpose for us if somebody is violating the Constitution. They have lost their authority at that level. And so, yes, the federal government should have interposed for the states. But instead, as I pointed out, he was incentivizing it. It's like, you keep this uh, emergency going, and I'm going to give you lots and lots of money. And, and you look at what happened, for example, with um, um, Governor Newsom. I call, you know, I call him Governor Newsom. Uh, <laughs> Governor Newsom had, had dug himself into a hole in terms of deficit there. And he came out of this whole thing, he was tens of billions of dollars uh, in negative, and he came out tens of billions of dollars in the black on, on the other side of it. You know, he went from being in the red to being in the black. And so, you know, it is, um, uh, it, it was in everybody's interest, all these governors, it was in their interest to do this. It really did bail a lot of people out with that. And even the Republicans, uh, they had, they were able, if they were, if their state was not heavily uh, uh, in debt or looking at being in debt, uh, these governors could still use it for their own political purposes. So yes, it, it was being incentivized with everybody, but I think that government at every level had a responsibility. And let me just say, I, I, I emphasize to everybody, we focus on what the president is doing because they've got so much money and so much power and they can get us involved in war. And, um, and so we do pay attention and we should pay attention because of the power that they have and the ability to disrupt our lives. But I think that we've got the whole thing upside down. I have talked to uh, people, uh, one individual who was behind the uh, Tuttle Twins books, and he's got a state uh, think tank in, um, uh, in Utah called Libertas. And he's been able to get a lot done at the state level. He said he started out in federal politics, but he said he couldn't really have any leverage there. So we helped to get a, a guy in the Senate, but he said there really wasn't anything that could be done. He said, we spend all of our time on Washington where we have the least amount of effect and we can have a lot more effect if we focus at the state and the local level. And if you go back and you look at what happened in 2020, it was your local sheriff or your local public health or your local um, uh, officials, your town council or mayor, or whatever, they were the ones who could either make things worse or they could make it better. They could make it worse than the state wanted or they could make it better or they could make it worse than the feds wanted or they could make it better. That's where we need to focus. And I think we really need to look at who our sheriff is 
and who some of these other people are, because that makes the biggest difference. It's the, it's the local government, then the state government, then the federal government. But we take it in exactly the opposite order. Right. Yeah. The uh, the lockdown states, did they get money from the federal government as they were locked down? Yes, there was a lot of money that was going. I mean, there's all kinds of increase in terms of unemployment benefits that they wanted and needed. And then, of course, um, there was the uh, massive amount of money that was part of that emergency order. There was an emergency order in, at the end of January that was done by Alex Azar, the head of HHS. And then in the middle of March, that was when Trump declared his state of emergency. That declaration was really all about money in the same way that uh, you'll have a governor if a hurricane comes through. Uh, they'll declare a state of emergency, and that releases all kinds of state funds to that area where the hurricane came ashore. And the same thing will happen. The federal government will also come in and say, yeah, you know, there's a hurricane that came through Florida, so we're going to declare that a federal emergency, and here's some federal money. So Trump's declaration of a state of emergency released a lot of that money, which then went to the governors. Mm. This, this was after lockdown. Yeah, this was that. This is the he did that on Friday the thirteenth, March thirteenth, twenty twenty. He did it based on a ginned up phony simulation coming out of the Imperial College of London, and it was a piece of garbage. And right. now the guy who put that thing together is trying to distance himself from it. But even other colleges said that he doesn't even have, you know the curve that Fauci is always talking about. Uh, that goes back to 1840. It's Farr's Law. It's called Farr's Curve, and it's a bell-shaped curve. And everything has always, every time there's an, an epidemic of something, it always follows that pattern. But in his model, he didn't have a curve. He had a straight line. And in his model, uh, <laughs> the University of Edinburgh pointed out that um, you could run his model with the same data, and every time you ran it, you get a different number out. I, I, this isn't legit, right? Yeah, this is like a random number generator. So just pick up the pick the number that you want and run with it. And you know that's the thing, Trump is still selling that as if that were the gospel truth. He's still saying, well, you know, we're going to have two million people die or whatever the number was, two hundred million. I don't know, uh, but uh, you know, he's still selling that. That look at all the lives that I saved with this stuff. It's like it was total garbage. If he still doesn't know that. I mean, again, the level of either dishonesty or stupidity involved in that, if he still doesn't know that, that's been so widely debunked, even by some of his own people that eventually came in like Scott Atlas. But Scott was only one person out of that administration, and it was uh, Burke and uh, Fauci and uh, uh, Redfield that, that really ran the show, and we're not going to change anything. It was just Scott Atlas knew the right stuff, but he was nothing but window dressing. Yeah. I um I think that study was funded by Gates, the one in, from the London College, if I'm not mistaken. I got might have been, there. yeah. He's got his fingers in all this stuff, doesn't he? Yeah, he's been involved in all these germ games too. Yeah, yeah. I got to double check that. I mean, earlier when you were talking about taking control of the states, uh, I was thinking about the whole Epstein situation in um when he was in Florida, especially. I watched this documentary called Filthy Rich. And so my question was, well, what do you do if like a guy like Epstein was running around in, in Florida doing what he was doing? What do you do when the uh, sheriff doesn't do necessarily anything about that? Because he did. I think he was he got a sweet a plea deal where he was able to go to jail during the day and then he could go to his mansion at night or something like that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and the guy who put that deal together was uh, Alex um, Acosta. Acosta. Yeah. Uh, who Trump brought in as Department of Labor head. 
and uh, the uh, he was the prosecutor and gave them that deal. And his lawyers, his defense attorneys, were Alan Dershowitz and Ken Starr. Ken Starr, who is supposedly Mr. Conservative, and you know he was the one who was the special prosecutor of Bill Clinton and chose to ignore everything that Bill Clinton was credibly charged uh, with, I, I believe. Uh, so many women had said there was uh, violent sexual assault and rape and other things like that. And there was a lot of uh, very good evidence for financial crimes. He ignored all of that, and he went with the consensual affair with Monica Lewinsky and with the legal um, uh, you know, detail that he had committed perjury. That's the only thing that Ken Starr did. So then from that, he goes to defending Jeffrey Epstein. And from there, Ken Starr goes to Baylor University, a Christian college, and tries to cover up this abuse and rape by the football team there at Baylor. I mean, it's just amazing, the guy's history <laughs> that he had. But uh, yeah, it, it is, you know, corruption can happen at any level, right? And, and so you can have a corrupt sher a sheriff, just having a sheriff, uh, that doesn't give us a guarantee of anything, but at least you get to vote for a sheriff. You don't get to vote for a police chief, right? You don't get to vote for the FBI, anybody in the FBI. It's the only law enforcement that you get to vote for, uh, but you can still have a corrupt sheriff. And um, in Tennessee, uh, where I live now, uh, in Athens, Tennessee, there was an interesting uh, true life story. They actually made a short uh, TV movie about it, The Battle of Athens. It's a bunch of World War II veterans who came back from the war. And there was this corrupt boss hog uh, sheriff who was running the town and, uh, and rigging the elections. And so they had an election to get him out. And uh, he and his deputies took all the ballots and took them to the jail and locked it up. But these World War II veterans got their guns and surrounded the jail. <laughs> and uh, I mean, it, 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 they, they actually they come out. We're not going to come out. So they bought some explosives and they're going to blow the jail up with the sheriff in there. But he came out. But, uh, you know, that was a very interesting situation. But ultimately, you know, it comes down to. Okay. You just cut out again. OK. Um, now, I can, now I can hear you. OK. I think we're all right. Well, anyway, that's what I was going to say is that we, you know, it can happen at any level and right. at any level, you can have somebody who can stand there and interpose for what should be happening with the constitution. So, right now I've also heard you talk about the jab. Mm -hmm. Um, I was going to, I'll just say vaccine. Okay. Yeah. I yeah. try to put these videos on YouTube, but get, you don't know what they're going to take down these days, but All okay. Right. I have friends and family that have taken taken the jab. Now, I I was encouraged. These are well-meaning people. They say, mm -hmm. go get it. Nothing's going to happen. You know, it's to protect yourself. I've heard you talk about some of the widespread um, adverse effects and yeah. deaths going on with this. Um, I've heard about it from other sources, but then sometimes I look within my own circle and, you know, I'm saying, well, nobody is dropping dead, but I'm hearing this on this side. Mm -hmm. Is there a lot of widespread death going on from this that we're not hearing about? Well, there's a couple of things happening with it. And one of the reasons that I uh, focused on it so much so early was I'd been covering vaccines for quite some time. And I was aware of what they would, I was aware of what was going on with dark winter. I was aware of what they would do on an annual basis in terms of push, pushing flu shots and things like that. And it was the same playbook that they used to push the annual flu shot. But uh, as we look through this, uh, what, what initially got my attention, I was so concerned about, was that at the uh, very inception of this, as they were starting to give people these vaccines at the you know, end of December, the beginning of January 2021, the end of December 2020, 
we started seeing a tremendous number of adverse effects in the VARES database. The VARES database, uh, they had, um, that's uh, the NIH's own database, the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System. And um, that VARES database, they had asked Harvard to take a look at it. And Harvard came back and said, well, we think only uh, about um, 1% of uh, these things are being reported. And uh, so it's highly underreported. And uh, yet, in spite of that, uh, we had a lot of uh, immediate, very adverse, even people dying right away uh, at the very beginning of this, and they're reporting it in. Now, they changed it so that you had to, um, if you, you, you did not count somebody as being vaccinated until two weeks after their second shot. So if somebody had an adverse uh, event, uh, they had some kind of a, a stroke or they had anaphylactic shock or something like that, uh, that would not be, after their first shot, that would not be counted as a vaccinated uh, uh, issue. But we saw so many of those that just the first uh, few weeks of January, we looked at this and it's like, there's already more of these events reported than all of the other vaccines for the last five years. And then it became for all of, uh, combined and then more than all the other vaccines for the last 10 years and so forth. And so uh, we we're very concerned about that. It was untested. Uh, that was how they were able to get it through so quickly. And um, I knew what the test procedures were. Test procedures were that you were supposed to test it on animals and then you were supposed to test it with a very small group of people just for toxicity. And uh, if it passed that, then you would have uh, two more phases of your test. The first one would be um, uh, you would have a, a double-blind test, so the people administering it would not even know who was getting a placebo and who wasn't, and that would run for several years. And if it was a vaccine, you would not do a challenge test, which means that you would vaccinate somebody and you would not expose them to the disease that you're vaccinating them for. Uh, that would be considered to be unethical. And there were a lot of people who were demanding that they do that with COVID. They were very afraid of COVID. And they said, I'll volunteer for this, you know, uh, shoot me up and then expose me to COVID. Well, they wouldn't do that. And they never did that before. What they would do, and the reason these trials would run for so long, is because they would then let those people circulate around in the general population and assume that over a number of years that they had been exposed. And so they would look at the people who had been vaccinated, the people who got placebos, and say, what percentage of both groups got this disease that I'm assuming they would have just contacted at random. And so you do that two different, uh, two different times. You have two different phases of that. The second phase is more people and it runs for a longer period of time. Well, they just cut all that out. And so for all those reasons, I was warning people not to do it. But then it was also the mRNA aspect of it. There had never been an mRNA drug that had uh, been approved or used. And that was going to be a novel procedure. And of course, that was the big selling point. And if you remember, Trump called in all these pharmaceutical executives with Fauci with him. And he went around the table and they had everybody arranged, already prearranged, so that the time that it was going to, how long is it going to take you to get this done? They had it prearranged. So the first person he goes to is very long. Oh, no, we can't do that. How about you? How long is yours? Went around the table and they all were decreasing amounts of time until you got to, um, uh, Moderna, and they said, well, we can do it right now because we're going to have your body manufacture the antigens and uh, so, um, or manufacture the, uh, the thing, the vaccine. And so for all those reasons, I was very concerned about it. And uh, usually in the past, uh, a vaccine would take a while for the adverse effects to show up. 
One of the best documented cases of that was Pandemrix, which was a shot that uh, Monsef Slawi, when he was at, um, I think it was GlaxoSmithKline was where he worked. But uh, he and Fauci put together Pandemrix, and they put that out as a vaccine for that flu. And in the Scandinavian countries where they don't have regulatory capture like we do here, they found that it had some severe adverse effects for young people that showed up faster than them because they've got a, a faster metabolism rate. And uh, they were getting narcolepsy and catalepsy. Narcolepsy just meaning that you fall asleep very suddenly. And uh, so that's a very life-destroying thing. I can't operate a car or anything else. And here we are decades later, a lot of these kids are committing suicide because it just destroyed their life. Catalepsy is even stranger. It's just freezing. And it's figured into some of the sci-fi uh, not sci-fi, but uh, fictional things. Um, Arthur Conan Doyle used it in a Sherlock Holmes movie, uh, a, a story, and uh, you had uh, Edgar Allan Poe use it in premature burial. You know, people thought this person was dead, but they were just had this cataleptic uh, uh, moment. But that was something that showed up with pandemics, and so um, we'd seen these types of things happen. But typically, it was very difficult to pinpoint it to a vaccine. But we were seeing in the early days that people were having a lot of problems with these vaccines. But there's something else, uh, Rashad, that, that, that's happening with this. And that is the fact that as they've been able to collect more and more information, they have seen that um, there was a tremendous difference between lot numbers. Uh, so, you know, they tracked the lots that they were putting out there. When you get your shot, they would get your contact information. So we're going to have to t let you know to come back and get your booster in 30 days. But the only other thing that they had there was uh, what lot number is this vaccine? And then they also had a box there that said refused. It's like, well, if uh, I refuse it, why do you need to track that, right? You don't need to contact me in another 30 days. But with that lot information there, and I think that um, you know Pfizer and these other companies were doing this as something of a test case, because one of the things that you test for when you have a drug is dosage, right? If you have too much, you kill people. If you have too little, it doesn't work, even if it's safe and effective at the correct dosage. You've got to determine what that correct dosage is. And so they found when they looked at it, Naomi Wolf did uh, some research on this after she got the uh, lots, and they found that uh, the adverse effects uh, were very dependent on which lot you got. And then as they looked deeper, they found that the active ingredients in the vaccines varied by a factor of 33. In other words, from the, um, and it was three, I think it was micrograms uh, on the low end and 100 micrograms on the top end. Now that's a tremendous variation, 33 times. And so that helps to explain one of the reasons why uh, this has shown up with some people and not with others. The other thing is, yeah. is that they have noticed that with each successive shot you get, uh, your risk of something happening doubles uh, with the Pfizer, and it goes up by a factor of four with Moderna. Now, with all that said, when you look at any particular drug or anything else, everybody's got a different metabolism. And uh, so it isn't, um, you know, even with very dangerous drugs that are taken off the market, you don't see um, everybody coming down with something. If you go back and you look at a previous uh, flu vaccine uh, that they took off of the market, you only had um, three deaths that were associated with it, but nine states took it off the market. Now, we've had more than three people who have dropped dead after getting this uh, shot within a couple of hours. Uh, 
and uh, yet they do nothing about it. And then we have also the the new phenomenon, which now they're just telling us we need to get used to it. It's a, a common thing now, I guess, that uh, young kids engage in uh, strenuous activity or athletes who used to always do this type of thing are now dying suddenly with heart attacks. And they don't yeah. realize that they've got myocarditis or pericarditis. And so they don't, you know, they're still pushing themselves to that level. And that's, that's when it blows up on them. So there's certain things like that that are really kind of silent killers. Yeah. Did you, how much time do you have left? Uh, I can go longer if you want. Okay. I don't know if you noticed that, but my computer completely shut down and I had to turn myself back on. Did you see that? Uh, was that when I dropped out? I don't know. um, I think you, you dropped out. I dropped out. Well, my computer just shut off. Oh, oh, okay. (laughs) I didn't notice that. Sorry. That's never happened before. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway. Um, so now again, so Trump during his, um, during his presidency, he pushed the Operation Warp Speed that was to get, you know, the shot out. Mm-hmm. And now, like you're saying, we're, we're having these, these issues with it. But And his base is criticizing the shot. Why do you think he is so firm or standing behind it still? Or ha- has he come out and criticized it at all? No, he's not going to criticize anything he did. But he is also, he's just going to take the path of just kind of ignoring it. And when you really push him on it, he'll come back and say, yeah, but we were going to have more people die with this than with the 1918 flu. He's done that several times, you know, and pushed on that with uh, Megyn Kelly or with Candace uh, Owen. Uh, he's, oh, yeah, I had to do it, you know, and I look at all the lives that I saved and all the rest of this stuff. Uh, but um, he, he was pushing really hard up until I think this last spring about the time he officially announced that he was going to run. And you had all these people saying, stop pushing the vaccine. Your people hate it. You know, and it's like, well, you know that this is, you know, people like Wayne Allen, people like Alex, you know, were always saying, stop talking about the vaccine. It's like, well, why don't you stop talking about Trump and selling him? You know, if Trump is selling the vaccine, why are you selling Trump? I don't understand. You know, the vaccine is bad. Uh, Why would you sell a guy who would, would continue to sell this to you? That's why I think that he's not, uh, he wasn't fooled. It's because he continued with that for a long time. Wow, interesting. And also another issue I wanted to bring up was when it came to the election and the um, talks of election fraud mm-hmm. and how COVID was used to um, push a, a lot of mail-in ballots and there was supposed fraud with the ballots being pushed. And in dem- um, the story was that the Democrats were pushing the mail-in ballots and that's where the fraud was. I think I've heard you say that, well, Trump shares responsibility in that, too, because of the lockdowns and so forth. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, I had uh, even still yesterday, I had uh, somebody say, well, you you need to contact these people because they really do have the receipts. I said, you know, where are the receipts for all this stuff? You know, uh, Steve Bannon had um, uh, the MyPillow guy, Mike Lindell, on, and he's going to got a special event. So he's going to show us all the receipts. Finally, we've got all this stuff put together. And about halfway through it, Steve Bannon says he's got nothing. He's not showing anything. But Steve Bannon is still selling all that stuff. And, and so what is going on with it? I said long before Trump even ran for president, uh, I'm on record on air talking about all the different ways that elections are rigged. And look, elections are rigged in so many different ways and have been for so long. Uh, I know that because I participate in the process as a third party um, in a third party and trying to get on the ballot every time. Ballot access is one of the key ways that the Republicans and the Democrats rig the process. If you get on the ballot, 
they will keep the independents and the um, um, you know, third parties out, which they learned their lesson with Ross Perot. So they're not going to let that happen again. And, and so uh, they tightly control the ballot, tightly control the debates. And then when you come to the actual election, of course, we've had, uh, there's always going to be fraud, people stuffing ballots or people playing games with the old fashioned uh, voting machines. But when you do it electronically, and it's not just Smartmatic or Dominion, that was foolish how narrowly they defined that. It's all of the electronic uh, voting machines are very vulnerable to being hacked. Look, they've hacked into the CIA and the NSA, and they've stolen their tools to hack other people. You know, they, they have tools to make them look like they're Russians or Chinese or, or North Koreans or whatever, or anybody. And, and so they stole all that. And uh, that was, uh, you know, exposed by WikiLeaks and other people. Who was and they? So, um, I don't know who stole it. I mean, somebody hacked it. It was Vault 7. Okay. And uh, first, uh, WikiLeaks said, well, we're not going to put the code out there because we don't ever want everybody having the ability to, to hack in and disguise who they are. And so they put out the manual uh, that described how it worked. Somebody else then leaked the code. And then after they leaked the code, WikiLeaks said, well, that's out there. We might as well put it out as well. And so they put it on their website as well. So both the manual and the code are out there showing Vault 7, showing how the CIA and the NSA in, uh, impersonates uh, any country that they want when they break into other people. But they got broken into and everything was stolen. The Pentagon has had their personnel files stolen. Everything is vulnerable. And so every voting machine is vulnerable to that kind of stuff. And then you have the new level of rigging that came in 2020, and Trump was responsible for that. When you know he issued the lockdown orders and then he didn't want to have um, uh, rallies, he didn't want to have um, um, you know the, the convention that they would typically have, and then he went along with all of this vote-by-mail stuff. And that is still with us, even though we don't have a pandemic. Now, we, we set that Trump precedent a vote by mail. And it's not even a vote by mail. We always had absentee ballots, but that was a very different thing. Now you got the mail out elections where they're mailing out ballots to everybody. And we saw in 2020, people were getting multiple, uh, getting ballots from multiple jurisdictions and things like that. So all this ballot harvesting and all this vote by mail stuff, that's a whole new level of corruption on top of all the other stuff that was always there. Why do you think that he didn't push back against um, mail-in ballots? Unless he did, I'm not sure. Um, it, knowing that, or maybe he didn't know, that um, the election could have been stolen or their fraud would have would could have been uh, present in that type of voting. Why do you think he didn't step in and push back against that? Well, uh, there are recordings of Steve Bannon telling a group of Chinese um, supporters and investors and everything, look, this is what's going to happen. You know, it's going to be this mail-on election. We're going to say that it was stolen, and, and uh, then we're going to contest all this stuff and take it back. And he said that uh, about a week before the election happened. And uh, so, you know, this was, um, uh, I think both sides are playing their own games. I think the elections are a hacking contest of what either side can get away with it. They have so many different ways they can rig it. Of course, you know, the, the press can use propaganda and smear tactics uh, to do things, uh, as I pointed out, everything from ballot and debate access to, you know, uh, paper ballots you know, can be stuffed and all the rest of the stuff. So there's a lot of different ways that everybody can cheat. Uh, you know, when I look at this, and of course, this is a key reason why I was fired, but I was fed up with all the lockdown stuff. I was fed up with the vaccine. I was fed up with the way that um, uh, InfoWars was pushing the um, the fear factor 
of, of this thing coming out of Wuhan because it was pretty clear very early on that they were following right according to the blueprint of these germ games that they had practiced for 20 years. Every one of those games, oh, we've got some kind of a disease out here that we can't control, and we're going to have to come up with an untested emergency vaccine for everybody. We've got to rush this thing out, and we've got to lock everybody in place before that gets out there. Uh, that strategy did not originate with the Chinese. Uh, that, you know, it looks like we all copied them. Uh, they were the first ones to implement it, but they had been practicing that for 20 years, every year. And you know, again, Gates is funding Johns Hopkins, and Johns Hopkins is always a part of it, and the CIA is part of it, and Fauci is a part of it. Um, so they've been doing these germ games, and we knew what that was, and the people I worked with knew what it was. But they decided to push the fear that this is something coming out of the Wuhan lab, and it's a real thing. We've all got to really be afraid of it. So buy my storable food, buy my mask, and all the rest of this stuff. And it's like, I can't believe you're pushing this stuff for money. And so I was very upset about that. And then when all of this election stuff hit, Two days after the election, Steve Pachenik, who's a longtime CIA guy that used to always come on with Alex, came on with Owen uh, Schroyer and told everybody that there was a, um, that the whole thing was a sting, that Trump arranged all this, that Trump printed out the ballots, and the ballots had something, some blockchain watermark that was connected to quantum computing and all the rest of the stuff. He's just throwing out a bunch of disconnected buzzwords. None of that could have been possible. And he said, we've got troops that are going around the country right now. We know who stuffed these ballots and the arrests are happening right now. Two days after the election, that got 4 million views. You had Clarence Thomas's wife sending that to Mark Meadows, uh, chief of staff for Trump. And um, uh, Rush Limbaugh talked about it the next day. The next day, I talked about it. I, that day when I saw it, I talked about it on social media. The next day on my program, I said, this is absolutely not possible. They nearly fired me for that. But then when we finally had, uh, they had their day where they could go around and try to make their case in court or make their case to the Republican legislatures, they didn't make a case anywhere that anybody agreed with them. And so after the... Um, Electoral colleges had all met, the electors had all met in their uh, respective states and sent in the totals. On uh, Monday, I think it was December the 14th, uh, I said, okay, this is nothing but a grift. You can see this now. They're trying to push everybody to January the 6th. I said, stay away from January the 6th. Don't send them your money. And so uh, Alex was very <laughs> was making a lot of money off of that. So he fired me that Thursday. But I stood by that. I kept telling everybody, stay away from January the 6th. This is a trap. You're being trapped. They're stealing your wallet, and they're going to throw you under the bus on January the 6th. Stay away. And I warned people that morning uh, about it. And, um, you know, I said uh, that was a Wednesday. And then the, the night before, they'd had the two runoff elections in Georgia. And I said, so we have these new rules that we're going to run the elections by. And nobody did anything at all about trying to stop that. We've got a Republican legislator, and we've got a, re a legislature, and we've got a Republican governor in Georgia, and, and Trump, and nobody wants to do anything to save the Senate. And so they lost both of the Senate seats last night on January the 5th. And I said, and now uh, January the 6th is going to be filled with agent provocateurs. I'm on record saying that. I told them what was going to happen. But it was all about taking their money and then throwing them under the bus, and it just disgusted me. I'm absolutely still mm. disgusted about all that stuff. Wow, that's amazing. Um, last few questions. Um, mm -hmm. In regards to the the mail-in ballots again, if um, 
if there is fraud going on with mail-in ballots, can't the federal government step in to investigate or um, stop that? Well, the problem is, is that, and this is one of the reasons why the whole thing with uh, the, the the sting and the and the you know the Trump ballots with a blockchain watermark on it and all the rest of this stuff, why that's all false. Every state prints its own ballots. Every state sets up its election rules. In some states, you have to have a photo ID. In other states, you don't have a photo ID. Every state has a different voting period, um, you know, um, and, and all these other things. And so, who gets to vote? Who's qualified as a voter? Uh, and the time and the manner of the elections—that is all a state issue. The federal government has no authority on that. Mm. And so, and I don't think that they should. Uh, but. Um, uh, again, if you want to, if, if they need, if we think that's a bad system, what we need to do is we need to, uh, amend the constitution. Uh, but, uh, as the constitution stands, all of those things are determined at the state level. And so there's really not much that the, the federal government, uh, can do in terms of changing the way the elections are run. Um, and, um, other than maybe expose it with an investigation or something like that. I think it was a legitimate thing to question the election. Let me just say that. Uh, because there is so much uh, fraud involved all the time. So I think that's very much a legitimate thing to talk about. And I had said a long time ago, I said, when you look at electronic voting machines, it all began with Smartmatic and it began in Venezuela. It was friends of Hugo Chavez who created that company. And they made sure that Hugo Chavez never lost another election. And there have been questions about Smartmatic voting machines, but not only Smartmatic voting machines, but especially Smartmatic uh, in, in terms of the Philippines, uh, elections there, in terms of elections in Brazil, in terms of elections in many uh, uh, provinces, or I forget what they call them, I get provinces or states or whatever within Mexico, uh, they've had a lot of uh, questions about corruption uh, with the Smartmatic machines and with the other ones. And, and of course, any of them can easily be hacked. Anybody, anything that anybody's got that's electronic, people can hack it if there's enough interest. And let me tell you, there's a lot of interest in federal elections because there's so much money to be had there. Foreign governments have an interest in it. Why is there so much corruption in Washington? Well, it's because they've got so much money. You know, it's like what the, the bank robber said. They said, why do you rob banks? He said, that's where the money is. Uh, well, the money is in Washington. So everybody wants to get a piece of that. And they'll do anything to get a piece of that. And it's like a big bank to rob. And so that's going to always uh, attract the worst elements uh, to that. Yeah. Well, it's all fake money when you really think about it. It's all yeah. being printed up. I mean, so is yeah, really yeah, it's a confidence game, <laughs> and one right. day it's going to end. <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's the scary part. Yeah. Um, <laughs> in regards to um, Israel and Hamas, um, this war going on, what, what's America's role when it comes to foreign wars? Should we be involved? Entangling alliances with no one. Uh, commerce with everyone. Uh, that was what the founders wanted. And I think that's a wise policy. Uh, we don't go abroad seeking monsters to destroy, said Adams. And the problem is that we don't really know what the issues are in most of these cases. And in a lot of the cases, there's not a good guy and a bad guy to pick sides on. And the problem is, is that America has become uh, both sides. You know, we are selling weapons to both sides in most cases. And we have become this um, empire of permanent war. And you can see it in Biden's gloating. Oh, yeah, of course we can do this. We're the most powerful nation on earth. As a matter of fact, we're the most powerful nation that's ever existed. Wow, that is amazing hubris and arrogance. But that is a you know 
a candid statement of what most of these people in Washington truly believe. I don't think that we should be doing this. And, and so uh, I, I look at it and without taking sides on, on either side, because I understand there's a lot of uh, good and bad on both sides of this. I, I make a distinction between the governments, uh, between Israel and the Hamas government, and between the Palestinian people and the Jewish people. And uh, understand that um, uh, just as there's a distinction between the American government and the American people, uh, I am not uh, in favor of what the CIA does. And there's a lot of people who don't uh, agree with uh, the government and Israel. And uh, that, is, that is true, I think, regardless of what your religious beliefs are about Israel. Uh, there's a, that's a very different thing when you're talking about a secular government and its conduct towards other people. Having said that, and with all of the issues that are clearly there uh, in terms of the treatment of uh, people in Palestine and other things like that, there can be no excuse for terrorism and the, the kind of brutality and uh, barbarianism that we've seen with that. And so it becomes a, it's a situation with really no good answers. I don't have any good answers for that except Jesus, because mm. that's the thing that changes it all. I played a clip of a guy who was a Hezbollah terrorist. And um, he was all set to be a martyr. He became a Christian, and now he's a missionary. The way that you have peace on earth, and we're coming up to Christmas, uh, the Prince of Peace came fundamentally to make peace between God and man. But once you are at peace with God through Christ, you will be, if you truly are, you will be at peace with your fellow man. We have to attack it from the inside. Most of these problems that we have are because of our human nature, our fallen nature, and we all have that to one degree or the other. And when we focus on these atrocities, uh, whether and I've seen pictures of both of uh, both sides of this that I wish I'd never seen before, and I still see them. Uh, but what that does is that that generates the anger. It generates well, we got to kill all the Jews, or we got to kill all the Palestinians, and it's a government that doesn't want that you know it's an israeli government that doesn't honor their own citizens or hamas government that doesn't protect its own citizens that puts them at risk i remember uh, hearing somebody say there was a palestinian it's like oh good finally somebody's pushing back against this oppression and then they stopped and said oh but wait a minute that's going to unleash absolute hell on us and of course hamas knew that when they did it and then when you look at uh, benjamin netanyahu he was bragging to the world economic forum how he had turned his people over literally as lab rats for Pfizer's data. He said, oh, yeah, we, we told him, we'll give you all the data. You just give us, put us at the front of the line for the vaccine. I'll give you the data on what happens to all our people for the next couple of years. Uh, so every government, including our own, uh, treats its soldiers as expendable and looks at its people as livestock. And we mm. should not be following them into wars. And so I, and I always say, you know, we go back and we look at what is a just war. We should always be governed by the idea that you don't go to war unless you are attacked. And then when you do go to war, you do things like you wear uniforms and you carry flags and you mark yourselves as combatants and you try to not harm civilians. And, and your goal is to stop the aggression and uh, to restore peace and to do that as soon as possible. We don't fight wars like that at the United, in the United States anymore. We don't want to end the war, and we don't care about civilian casualties. And this is the way it is, not just with the U.S., but with everybody. It's just that we get involved in more wars, and we have more power than everybody else does at this time. And so that yeah. has been characteristic of what we do. 
Yeah. One of the issues that I've had with um, regards to Israel and, and the Middle East is, you know, being, going to church and having a lot of Christian friends. Um, the position is always, well, stand with Israel. And, you know, that um, Israel is the uh, the victim and not saying that it's not. But um, when, when you see all this going on, then you hear the stories about what's going on in Palestine. And, you know, as a Christian, you're just like, OK, well, people, you know, you hear people in the church say, are very, very fervent and pro-Israel, mm-hmm. regardless of what the stories are in, in, in Palestine. And, you know, I hear friends well, say- Well, they read about Israel all the time in, in the Old Testament. And yet what they seem to forget is that in all those stories, <laughs> uh, there's always just a small portion of the people that are really following God. And that's one of the reasons why Israel is constantly, you know, getting alternatively uh, whacked by God and then brought back and restored and then whacked again. And, all, you know, they're constantly falling away and, and doing uh, bad things. And he's constantly calling out their judges or their governors or their kings or whatever for being evil. God does not. Uh, God, God judges nations based on your leadership. And that's the thing that ought to really scare us here in America. And so there's a difference between the government of Israel and, and Israel, uh, the Jewish people, and Israel of uh, prophecy and promise, you know. And even Paul says that not all of Israel is Israel. There was always, you know, mm-hmm. it was Elijah said, I'm the only one left. And God said, no, there's uh, several thousand more that I reserved to myself. But the vast majority of, of physical Israel was not spiritual Israel. And, and so that's what we need to understand. I put it this way. You know, we, we, look at, we look at prophecy and we look at the overall scheme of things, but we need to understand that we don't know how or when God is working with Israel or with anything else in terms of fulfilling prophecy. But what he has revealed to us very clearly is how we are to conduct ourselves and how we are to conduct ourselves is never to excuse the kind of terrorism and abuse that we saw by Hamas or war crimes by the Israeli government. Uh, those types of things, God has made it very clear that he doesn't like fraud. He doesn't like uh, uh, you know, that uh, type of uh, wanton murder. And uh, so those things are very clear to us as to what God wants. Right. Uh, we don't know when he's going to come back. We don't know how he's going to use Israel or whatever, but we do know what he wants us to do. And, yeah. and so that needs to be where we start and really where we end and all the rest of the stuff. Yeah, think about, I'll say one more thing here. When you look at so many people, it's like, oh, great. You know, look at all this stuff is happening. This could be Armageddon. And then uh, according to my eschatology, we're going to get uh, raptured out of here and I don't have to die. This is good. This is good. It's going to happen. And yet, what happened when God promised to Abraham that he is going to have, uh, uh, you know, seed and all nations will be blessed through him and all the rest of the stuff? And he decides he's going to be the father of many nations and so forth. He decides, well, God's taking too long. I'm going to help this thing along. Well, that's how we got, <laughs> how we got to this mess, right? Uh, you know, you don't. God doesn't need our help. And if we think that God is doing it in the wrong way or taking too long to do it, that's when we get into trouble. You know, God has made certain promises, but the time and the manner in which he's going to do it is up to him. He has told us clearly how to live our lives, and that is what's up to us. Well said, well said. Uh, Last questions. Um, Mm -hmm. I have a friend who also listens to you, and we've had discussions about your critiques on Trump, and he wanted me to ask you this. And his Mm -hmm. question is, um, looking back, do you think your total dislike of Trump 
was fair? Was there anything good about his contributions? That's his question. And my last question is, what would you... Go ahead. Okay. Sorry. You want me to answer that one first, and then you can ask me yeah. your question. Okay. Um, I supported Trump against Hillary Clinton. Uh, again, my position was Julian Assange. We don't know who this guy is. Um, he's got absolutely no record public, but we did have a record of his character. And so I was not a big fan. And so when he was running as um, uh, a candidate early on, it became very clear with Alex and everybody else I was working with who were totally on board with him that I was not totally on board. As a matter of fact, I, I did a report that uh, compared what he did to a widow in a parking lot. He wanted to take her house so he could build a parking lot for his casino. And um, she didn't want to sell. And it was straight out of Pixar's Up, if you remember that, right? The guy's hanging out. He doesn't want to sell his house. And um, <laughs> he eventually got the local government to condemn her property. And, uh, and, but then he wound up not building the, the uh, parking lot because he went bankrupt with his casino. And then when you look at his wives, you know, he not only made uh, a, you know, divorce is something that is rampant in our society. And, uh, you know, there's enough blame to go around with everybody. And I don't typically say anything about somebody getting divorced. But Trump would mock his wives as you see him mocking his staff as they leave, right? People that he hired and bragged about how wonderful they were. Then when he decides he wants to fire them, he kicks them as much as he can on the way out. <laughs> you know, that's his character. And I was very concerned about that. You know, we, we've had presidents who have had uh, adulterous affairs forever, but they had the decency to try to hide it. He was out there bragging about it. And I said, this was before there were pride parades. I said, uh, uh, who, who goes out there and brags about their adultery? You know, or it's when we started having pride parades. And I said, who brags about their adultery? Well, you know, Trump is about the only person I would know that would brag about his adultery. So I had some character issues with him. But I understood the argument that a lot of people made that, uh, if I need uh, my house uh, fixed by a plumber, uh, I don't really ask about his private life and that type of thing. I just think that uh, character matters in politics. I think if somebody is going to violate their oath to their wife, they're going to probably violate their oath to strangers into a constitution. Uh, in terms of his first three years, I thought it was pretty typical of what you would see with a Republican president. He had some good things, had some bad things. I didn't think his, his tax uh, program was very good. Uh, but I thought that his, um, uh, his position other than, uh, the Paris climate accord, uh, he did have Scott Pruitt in who was very good, uh, while he was still there. And they did some important uh, things to push back against, uh, the agendas with the EPA to take away our energy and some other things like that. I think that was the, in spite of the Paris climate, uh, issue, I think that energy and uh, self-sufficiency at here at home, I think that was a strong point. I always thought that the wall thing was not going to uh, really do anything because there's a big magnet that's pulling people across, a big welfare magnet that's pulling them across. It could slow things down, but it really wasn't the solution. He had to get to the root cause of it, but he didn't build the wall. And, and so that was another one of these things, but it was 2020. When 2020 happened, it's like, okay, this is full on betrayal. This is the worst I have seen from any president, Democrat or Republican. I'm not going to I'm not going to try to excuse any of that stuff. It is what it is. And so with that happening, I became adamantly uh, set against him. The rest of the stuff, he was kind of like, eh, it's just another one of these uh, people who become president. They do some, a little bit of what they said they were going to do. They do some things that they said they weren't going to do. Uh, and so that's kind of standard fare. You always see that with him. But 2020 was, 2020 was completely different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, Roe v. Wade, a lot of people... Um 
brag about that as well. Yeah, um, but of course now he's changed his position on that, right? He's he's now said that it's too harsh. <laughs> <laughs> he's mm. he's pulling back as he's running. You know, you got uh, LifeSite News, which is a Catholic site, very pro-life. They're very upset with him. And other people have said, you know, he, he said that protecting um, uh, babies with a heartbeat law like they did in Florida, he said, that's too harsh. Wouldn't do that. Shouldn't do that. Yeah. And he says it's a losing issue. We got to not do it. It's not a losing issue. All you got to do is show the people the truth about abortion. Show them pictures of the procedure. Uh, there's an animated cartoon uh, that was done, narrated by Kevin Sorbo. Show them that. And, right. uh, you, and you win the argument, show them yeah. pictures of the babies and you win the argument. Yeah. And last question, David, what would you say to a younger generation or young adults that are growing up now in this generation? I'm, I'm in my late thirties, but, um, we're coming up now in this world and we're seeing things that we we've never seen before mm -hmm. and we're trying to make sense of the world. What would you say to a younger generation trying to make sense of the world? Well, I would say that I've seen things in my life uh, shifting radically and the rate of change is increasing radically and it's going to continue to uh, change radically. Uh, we are, I think, in a period of time, Strauss and Howe talked about the fourth turning. Uh, there are a couple of guys who had a generational view of history. They coined the term millennial. And so we talk about generations like, you know, Generation X and Y and Z and millennials and things like that. That really came from them. And they noticed the pattern that about every 80 years, about every four generations, uh, everybody gets tired of, they lose faith in all the institutions, uh, and you have a, ma a, a big uh, change that happens. They call it the fourth turning, the fourth, uh, every fourth generation. And it is usually, well, it's always accompanied by financial uh, issues and usually accompanied by war. I think things are going to change very radically. And so with the ground shifting under your feet, like you're in some kind of an earthquake, uh, you need to call out to God. It, it is a good opportunity to not wait until you're old to uh, think about your mortality, to think about the meaning of life, to try to get a handle on that. That's really what you have to uh, get a handle on. I've thought for the longest time, Hillary Clinton's talk about the politics of meaning I thought it was really a, a, a pitiful thing, you know, for somebody to have no meaning in life except for politics or for money or for whatever it is. Uh, think about the things that you could chase that are going to disappear in this brief life or the things that you can pursue that are going to be eternal and uh, put your hope in that. And um, so that's what I would say to anybody at any age, especially at a young age. The sooner you do that, the better, the better your life will be. Yeah, absolutely. That was a great word. David, thank you for your time. Well, um, you. Where, can, where can people find you? Um, uh, the David Knight Show has links to the to the show. Uh, we're not on wrong. I'll tell you where we're not at. We're not on the big places, YouTube or Spotify, but we're everywhere else pretty much. Uh, we're on Rumble. Uh, we're on Odyssey. We're on um, um, all the uh, podcasts you'll see, but we have links to everything at thedavidknightshow.com in case you have trouble finding us. Uh, we have links to the different places where the podcast is published, as well as the videos. We put the full show up every day, Monday through Friday. We're there from uh, 9 a.m. till noon. And uh, we put the full show up, and we usually cut out uh, some short pieces from it as well on the video channels. On the podcast, we cut out our interviews, and then we have the full show up on all the podcasts as well. But you'll find it all at thedavidnightshow.com. 
Absolutely. David, thank you for being uncompromising and thank you for being principled and choosing principle over party. I, we don't find too many men like that, honestly. Well, I'm telling you. you that. Yeah, as a listener. There's a, reason, <laughs> there's a yeah. reason for that. It's not a good business model, I can tell you. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. God well, bless. Thank you. Thank you, Rashid. Rashad. Thank, right. you. thank you very much. God bless.